is about all those things, but it's also about properly defining and properly confronting, defining and confronting evil. I don't know about you, but I find myself still, I have, oh, Genesis, I feel like everyone in Genesis who's bad. I don't feel like Enoch. I feel like everybody else, though. I feel like everybody in Genesis. And again, I find myself this time, which is kind of awkward because I'm male, but feeling like Eve, because I want to know and I want to decide what's good and what's evil. My standards. I mean, as informed by God's word, but my standards. And I find myself like Jacob, or even like Simeon and Levi. When I'm confronted with evil, I can so easily take apathy, or anger, or both, instead of being like God, who has a, words we don't typically think to go together, a merciful justice, God who has patient, kind discipline. I get that the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God when I look at passages like this and as I look in the mirror. We fail to comprehend all the ramifications of the realities of life in a fallen world, don't we? I just want stuff simple. But life happens and I find out it ain't simple. We forget that a holy God rules over a kingdom in utter rebellion. That human depravity, not that we're totally depraved and we can do nothing right, but every, every molecule has some depravity therein. That human depravity and divine forbearance continue to exist side by side. Since the Bible's clear, the Old and New Testament, quoting the Old Testament, there, no one is righteous, no, not one. And it's apparent that God must put up with evil and rebellion every moment, every day. And in amounts and proportions that I frankly cannot even begin to fathom. Texts like this bring me in touch with that. And yet, my, our sense of fairness can be easily surprised and actually offended when God judges in a way that we think, that I think, could be unjust or extreme. My sense or our sense of justice then, that's fairness, what about justice? That can be equally surprised or offended when God shows mercy. Unless it's to me. Or God just chooses to meet people where they are. And then he has the audacity to patiently wait for them to change. This text is hard. It contains no commentary about the actions and attitudes of the characters. None. It's because it doesn't need to. It assumes evil. It leaves it to us to discover God's goodness and faithfulness to his, un, his undeserving and utterly sinful chosen ones. It's amazing because the Bible has no, no difficulty ever deconstructing the heroes of the faith, revealing their flawed leadership and lives, their spiritual and moral mishaps and compromise, their sin and stupidity. Why? Because it's about faith. It's about grace. 
Their status is not determined before God by, by being rooted in moral perfection or the strength of character or wise decisions or even righteous deeds. That's not where it's rooted. Those are given and those are required. That doesn't determine status. Who can do that perfectly? Who can do that? Who can do enough righteousness to ascend God's holy hill? So with that in mind, let's pray and take a look at our text. Father, help us. Tough text, but your spirit's here. Tough text, but it's your word. Help me to preach. Help me and all of us to grasp and understand. And Lord, help us to apply and then help us to give it away. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to just throw this into three big pieces. The text in two parts, a little commentary at the end. So we're, we're saving all the application, so to speak, to the very end so we can feel the text in a little bit. We're going to look at the fact that bad people and bad and good, we could put them in quotations, but it's just a fact. Bad people can do good things. And good people can do bad things. Why are we surprised by either? We're self-righteous in our response towards either. And then here's what's amazing. God can use evil for good. Let's start out with bad people can do good things. Let us, oh no, I have just discussed, well that's all right. I'll just, I forgot to bring, but I have a Bible right here. I didn't bring my little other device, but I brought this one, so I'm good to go. Let's look at Genesis 34, and we're going to start with reading verses 1 through 12. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her. And humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He, he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry. Because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with him saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please, give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. And Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great bride price and gift, as you will. And I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman 
to be my wife. Wow. Remember, Jacob, Jacob has, has, has just ignored God. Let's just back up to the last couple of verses. Jacob has ignored God and has deceived Esau. God called him to Bethel, but he decided to delay his obedience, which is a nice way to say he was disobedient. First by sojourning outside of the promised land, and then moving inside the promised land, purchasing property in an area about 20 miles from where God called him, 20 miles from Bethel. Property which just happened to belong to the sons of Hamor that he bought, that was right by, feels like Lot right now, prosperous Shechem. Jacob had many sons, but only one daughter, Dinah. Dinah's mom was Leah, and she, like her mothers and brothers, Dinah, like her mothers and brothers, were not the family favorites. And Dinah, apparently from this text, the only girl, least of all. But Jacob's clan has found favor with the local tribes, and it appears that Dinah has become intrigued with the girls of the town and has gone to spend some quality time alone with them apparently without a chaperone, which was the norm for the day. She may or may not have had permission to do so. The text doesn't say. But regardless, she's noticed by Shechem. And she's raped. The verbs in the original language describe a progression in brutality. And they draw attention to the, the force that's used in the encounter. But then something odd happens, inexplicable. The rapist's lust turns to love. He becomes genuinely attracted to her, consumed by her, madly in love. Even even the narrator and the boy's dad seem to validate the truth of that statement. So he seeks to woo her by speaking tenderly to her. Bad people can do good things. Again, the original language uses expressions that show a change of heart, a sense of guilt and repentance, and he wants to convince her of that. But then he reveals his impatient side. When he tells, in his sin, when he tells his dad to get the girl. Just get the girl. While the narrator continues to refer to this young girl, this victim, as a young woman, a a maiden. A word that's just uploaded with dignity. She hasn't sinned. Jacob somehow hears the rape but does nothing about it. Tough not to be self-righteous right now. The text records no reaction. We know Jacob was capable of swift action. No outrage is recorded. He doesn't even send a messenger to inform the brothers who are working in the fields. They discover what's happened. They come home and they are furious. They are shocked. Actually, the same word for shocked and furious there is the same word that the narrator uses when God looks down on the, on the chaos, the moral chaos of the earth right before he sends the flood. God looks down and is shocked. The boys come home and they're shocked. 
The rape in the text is referred to in several ways as a wanton sin, which is a synonym for a sexual crime. A defilement that makes the poor girl a victim unclean, like an outcast in society. It's referred to as a folly, which is a godless act. It pollutes the family. It dishonors and destroys the sanctity of the family. Remember, nothing was a solitary act in the clan. It's a different context than we're used to as Americans. It ruins her status and her prospects for marriage. Not to mention the horror and the pain to her personally. And, and the boys get it. It violated Yahweh's moral law. And it invites a response from God, which they are eager to carry out. Because of his covenant with Abraham. She's been raped. And as the text will allude to later, and they know now, She's been kidnapped. She's held hostage. Such a thing is just not done. Not in Israel, nor in the surrounding culture, because they had laws against this kind of thing, too. So Hamor approaches Jacob, but his sons quickly take over the negotiations. And Jacob is strangely, sadly silent. But Hamor is shrewd. He knows he has power, authority, numbers, and wealth on his side. He has a hostage, one who will have a very difficult time finding a husband. So he embarks on diplomacy, avoiding the obvious, doesn't even mention the crime. Instead, he proposes a solution, something he thinks that's reasonable and generous, and promises incredible material advantages to the entire family. I mean, after all, what's wrong with this? The boy gets the... Sounds like me as I look at sin sometimes. What's the big deal? The boy gets the girl that he loves. The girl gets a husband that will love her better than what Leah got. You guys get property, trade opportunities, freedom, and safety. All we have to do is blend our tribes together. Like Satan to Jesus, I'll offer you the kingdoms of the world. You'll have everything that God promised if you'll only violate what he said to do. Shechem joins in immediately with a name that price on the dowry. Now, she's not damaged goods to him, and he's, he means that. He'll pay higher than custom dictates. Their call. And he'll even give them a gift, too. Wow. Okay, so how would you respond if you were dad and brothers? Relativism, justice. Both wrong, not the justice they extract. How about a, a merciful justice? Justice without self-righteous anger. Justice that believes the New Testament that says, don't go for de- vengeance, God will repay. Justice that must be pursued Call the cops. Have him arrested. Remembering that you're a cosmic criminal as well. The punishment must fit the crime more later. Good people can do bad things. Let's pick up where we left off in verse 13. 
The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we'll take our daughter. And we will be gone. Their words please Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of their city saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male is among us is circumcised as they are circumcised well will not their livestock their property and all their beasts be ours only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us and all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And the text ends. The brothers answer with deceit. Dad, Daddy was a deceiver. And they'll follow even further in his footsteps because the word that's translated for deceit is a word that has synonyms and roots in the word treachery. The brothers answer with treacherous deceit. Circumcision was a widely practiced rite in that part of the world at that time frame. It wasn't just the Jews. It was widely practiced as a rite of puberty, fertility, and marriage. It was not an unreasonable request to the townsmen. It would simply be a marriage or tribal initiation. But for the brothers, how sad, how terrible. Circumcision was the sign, their sign of covenant 
with God. We find even Rahab, the prostitute, an outsider and others, God always allowed for outsiders to come to faith and be added to the community via circumcision as the sign that they wanted to be a part of God's covenant people. But Jacob's sons, they're uninterested in being a blessing, which is part of their birthright from Abraham. They did not desire conversion, but execution. Evangelism was not motivating them. Genocide was. Not salvation, but vengeance. This holy sign and symbol was being used as a means of murder, outright theft, and kidnapping. And it worked! Father and son called a town meeting and presented them a proposal. Now when they did it, they concealed the data about Dinah. Whoops! in the marriage requirements. Instead, they pitched it as a matter of material gain and more women with a subtle shift in the original bargain that gives the upper hand to the men of the town. As the speech continues, it even reduces Jacob's benefit to nearly nothing beyond what he already was was experiencing in the land. So, just let him dwell with us. We'll intermarry. We have the upper hand And we will slowly and systematically plunder all of his wealth. Golly. So like everybody's guilty of something. And no one is fearing God. Can it be a worse mess? Yeah, it gets worse. So Shechem's the first to be circumcised. And what a sad tale. Because he's responding immediately because of his genuine love for Dinah. The rest of the town follows because they have a genuine love, too, for money and possessions. Circumcision was a crude procedure. It was very painful and would debilitate an adult male, especially about on the third day when when the pain and fever would set in. What's, What's three days for incredible wealth and more women? It's their reasoning. And that's when the deceivers were deceived. Simeon and Levi, Leah's middle two boys, they're in their early 20s, Dinah's blood brothers, affected the slaughter. They may have enlisted the help of their servants, or they may have just been able to do it, which is probably the truth, on their own, because the town was not huge, and owing to the pain and the fever, The town was functionally unarmed. What a dark day. The brothers may be doing the right thing. More on that in a minute. But they did the right thing the wrong way. And they did the right thing with the wrong motive. We have to be careful in our desires for justice and our rights but we don't do the right thing the wrong way, which betrays a wrong motive masquerading as righteousness. And possibly they did the right thing the wrong way with bad information as well. By the way, brutal punishments, remember, we're reading this through the eyes of our day. 
Doesn't make it right, but I want to set a context. Brutal punishments were the norm in that day in those cultures. They typically did. All the surrounding cultures did, did things like cutting off tongues, noses, ears, breasts, and hands. That was normal. Perjury, libel. You got a minimum in Egypt of 100 strokes. Minimum. Not to exceed 200. Negligent home builders who caused the death of a minor by the house collapsing or a piece of the house collapsing and they were found criminally negligent? The punishment? One of your minor children were killed. Plowing and plant, plowing and planting. Now remember, it's an agrarian culture. You've got to eat. Plowing and planting on purpose in someone else's field was a capital crime. Theft in some cultures around there got you the death penalty. As in nearly all of them did kidnapping and rape. Everyone knew the code, the unspoken law that everyone did. If you kill my family member, I'll kill one of yours. So welcome to the cultural context. And you could see how that provided an easy justification, an easy justification for the execution of a rapist. But the townsmen, what about them? What about the bad info, bad intel? Well, because there was no outcry from the townspeople, because no one said, hey, we're not going to agree to that, then complicity was assumed. Now, it was wrongly assumed because Simeon and Levi didn't know that even the townspeople were lied to. But it was assumed, and they said, fine. They don't care either. We're going to broaden the scope. The single bright spot on this dark day was Dinah's rescue. But that was it. All the men were killed, and the women, and the children were captured, and the livestock and all their material goods plundered by the other brothers. Only after all of this did we, where's dad? Only after all of this did we finally hear from Jacob. It, it's, it's interesting, whether you look in churches or families or societies and political and religious movements, when, when mature leaders are indifferent, when mature leaders are apathetic towards obvious injustice and evil, what happens? Zealous young men will rise to the occasion. And many times, they'll overreact. They rise to the occasion. They're right. But they overreact. The two young men had a correct and instinctive, and by the way, reasonable desire for justice to kill the one person. But their misguided methods were excessive. And they were ruthless. Instead of a righteous and just response to evil and worldly defilement, they attempted to correct evil with evil. Anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Oh, parents, let us take note how we discipline and why and for what.
And Jacob, too little, too late. And by the way, what he finally says is stupid. Just is. There's no log in his eye. There's no responsibility. There's no ownership. There's no repentance. There's no prayer. Nothing's ever recorded being said to Dinah or Leah. There's no commentary on intermarriage and how they shouldn't have promised that in the first place because of God said. There's no commentary on breaking your word. There's no, there's no commentary on the deception and the treachery. And he probably was there. Didn't happen in a corner. Nothing about the plunder. No problems with the kidnapping. No words even to any of the other brothers. Just to Simeon. And Levi and his concerns and his rebuke are not moral. They're not ethical. They're not Godward. No, they're strategic and they're pragmatic. Jacob is Israel is now acting like Jacob. All his complaints are rooted in fear. Now they may be attacked and exterminated. They may be attacked and exterminated. What a hypocrite. So Simeon And Levi, and I prefer the way other translations have it, because it's, for me anyway, brings out the force. They just say one thing back to their dad. They can't even pronounce the guy's name. Literally, like a whore? Should he treat our sister? And Jacob is silenced. And the text moves on. There's no commentary necessary. Is the dark narrative speaks for itself. It's yet another sad. Remember Noah, just, just the list goes on. It's another sad and sinful chapter in the history of God's children. But here's the good news. God can use evil for good. Remember earlier on I mentioned that God is comfortable with truth. He's very comfortable with the deconstruction of the heroes of the faith in order to show one thing. It's all by grace. It's all by grace through faith. Remember? Two Testaments, same God. So we've covered this a million times, every chapter. I need to hear it again. So the question is, how will he pull it off on this one? What in the world can come cut of this? Dinah is not even mentioned. She's the victim, but not the focal point. That's because the narrator has a point larger than Dinah, but he doesn't ignore Dinah. It's one of those unspoken things. She's not mentioned, but think about it. She wasn't forgotten by God. If the hairs of her head were numbered... In Deuteronomy, we see adultery and rape as a capital crime. If Jesus is aware of what it's like to be brutalized on a cross, not in the same way, but more painful and more awful, if Jesus is mistreated by those he came to save and those he spent the last three years with have all deserted him, he knows that cry in the dark. God heard her cry. He heard her anguish. And through the sin of another, 
He avenged her. Jacob? God always allows Jacob to experience evil. And God allowed him yet again to experience the full and ugly effect of his disobedience. Jacob comes to the end of the chapter with another duh, aha moment. He deserves nothing. But God is faithful. And in the next chapter, after exhausting the depths of his evil, God's going to call him back. And Jacob, a broken yet again, contrite and humble man, will be back to being Israel and will respond. What about Simeon and Levi? You know, Levi of the Levites? Well, Genesis 49 records that cursed be their anger. This gives you God's perspective for it's fierce and their wrath for it is cruel. Rejected out of the covenant? No. Disciplined? Yes. What about Genesis and Greenville? Well, where we began is where we'll return. The text sets the stage for the violence done to Joseph. We're paraphrasing Genesis 50, which we all know. We, we now are figuring out these boys can be violent and deceitful. They're going to take dad's stuff to a new level. And we're going to see it really happen in daddy's two favorite boys. Joseph said, Joseph's probably about nine, by the way, when all this is happening. You meant it for evil to his brothers, but God meant it for good, for the salvation of the whole tribe, the whole nation, for our salvation. Remember, human depravity and divine forbearance exist side by side. How about this? You want to you mix it up and get a little more mysterious? How about human depravity and God's sovereignty exist side by side? Remember, God over all. That's our theme. Well, we have to remember that providence is not just when neutral events turn out for good. Providence is not when you have a fortunate event happen to you. Those are both accurate, but that's not the limits of providence. Providence doesn't always smile. No. This chapter makes clear God is at work even in the context of evil behavior. You and I got to hear that. When's the last time evil's been done to you? We don't have to close our ears and our eyes and put our fingers in our ears and say, la, 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 la. And call it what it is. When's the last time you did evil? mysterious, but God is still at work even in the context of evil behavior. After all, if he's only active in good and he has no power over evil, what can God accomplish in a fallen, sinful, rebellious world? Except annihilate it. He can put up with it and override it. Or he could kill us all in our sins. But his sovereignty is not simply about overriding evil. No. 
God actually dovetails his goodness into the evil. This is hard. That's what we talk about in theologians for, for decades, hundreds of years. God coined the phrase, he uses sin sinlessly. Evil. And this is, this is where comfort comes in when evil happens to you. Evil. Either human evil or demonic evil. Evil presents no obstacle for our powerful and patient God. He will work it all out every single time for your ultimate good and His glory. So the challenge is like when we become like Eve, back to where we started. When you're like Eve and I'm like Eve and I want to be my own moral compass, I want to determine the definition. I want to determine the duration. And I want to determine the appropriate response to what I feel is evil. And it's usually apathy or anger. And I want to limit the duration of evil if it's happening to me. And I want to, I want to, I want to extend the duration of evil if it's happening to you because you deserve it. Trust and submission is an act of faith. It's not a blind leap of faith because God proves himself good. God proves himself faithful. God proves himself powerful. His definition of evil, the duration of evil, and his and our required response to evil We don't reach out and grab the fruit and become like God, knowing what's good and evil. We don't have the wisdom. We don't know the hearts of men and women. We don't know the end from the beginning. We don't know if this happened, how someone would respond, or when does someone reach the point when God knows they will no longer. We don't know. But it's not an act of blind faith. This humble submission is an act of informed faith because God proves himself good and faithful and wise and powerful in Genesis, in our lives, and mainly on the cross. Only God knows the thoughts and intents of people's hearts and how they will or won't respond to his kind overtures. Remember, justice is just that. It's just. God is just and everyone deserves to die. The wages of sin are death, literal and physical separation from God. If we all get what we deserve, we will all burn in hell. And no one burning in hell receives injustice from God. But nor is there any injustice when God decides to withhold and give Mercy. That's not injustice. It's just withholding justice and giving mercy. And he's called us to be merciful, which is why I put the terms merciful and justice together. Life under the sun. Life under the law, as far as the law of the land. What do you do when someone rapes your daughter? That's simple. Through gritted teeth and crying eyes, you forgive him as you have him arrested. That's what you do. 
You don't do what your first impulse is. Kill him! No. Ask Simeon and ask Levi. God grants mercy and God... God forgives murderers. And if you're a Christian, you killed Christ. He hung on that tree because of your sin and my sin. God forgives murderers. God can use evil for good. Oh, you want, you want the this, this, this screaming set of passages? They're not the only, but some ones that, that figure this all out. Tells you about God. It, it doesn't tell you why of evil. It doesn't tell, no, 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 no. But you, you can trust and you can rest and look what he's done. Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, it's a speech for the prosecution. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of a willing and loving and active God, you crucified. And killed by the hands of lawless men. God uses sin sinlessly. Peter goes on to preach later in the same sermon. Now, here's the effect. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, We killed God. What do we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and take on the covenant sign that you want to join the covenant family. Repent and be baptized. Not half of you. Every one of you who are asking and are convicted, what do we do? Everyone upon whom God has moved, and they're feeling it, I'm guilty, and I deserve hell. I am responsible. What do I do? Well, repent, and be baptized in the name of the person you killed. Because he's God over all and he's our savior and he's your substitute who died on a cross for you for the forgiveness of your sins and then it just doesn't wipe the slate clean everything is restored and you'll receive the gift of the holy spirit that that's a gigantic promise we can't go into that affects every part of their psyche and their soul and their everything. But the bottom line is, it's your fault. Turn back to him. He'll forgive you. And by the way, not only will he wipe the slate clean, he'll live inside of you. He'll dwell with you. 
God doesn't just forgive murderers. He adopts them. God defined the sin. It was a speech for the prosecution. And this same God provided a way out. The death of his son. How will you respond? To God? Right now? If you're not a Christian? And how will you respond? To God? And to others? When you or a loved one experience evil. It's an old hymn, Trust and Obey. You got to do one before you can do the other. But God gives us an informed faith. He says, You can't figure it out. It's too, too big for your little puny pea brain. You're finite. But you want to figure it out? Look at the cross. It'll all be okay. The punishment's been paid. Nobody gets away with murder except you get mercy. And I'll always love you and I'll never leave you. Let's pray. <laughs> well, Lord, What do we say in the face of all of that? We deserve nothing, and yet you give us yourself. Lord, we, we find ourselves like Jacob and like Simeon and Levi and like Shechem. And in your patience, Lord, as unbelievers, your patience that unbelievers are not killed the minute they sin for the first time. Your patience is meant to extend to them kindness so they have time to repent. And I pray, Lord, for the unbelievers in this room that they would see the kindness of God. They would know, Lord, that, that <laughs> you're not slow concerning your promises. You, you, are, you are going, you seem slow, but no, no. They will be punished and you are patiently giving them invitation and opportunity so they don't feel for all of eternity your wrath. And Lord, for those of us who are followers of Jesus and we are Christians and we're disciples and we love you. We love you imperfectly. And we have been declared good. And we're a good person. A declared good person. Who still, like Jacob, he's Israel. We got a Jacob inside of us too. And Lord, this gives us comfort. Lord, thank you for your patient and persistent mercy. Thank you that evil done against us will not overcome your goodness, nor evil done by us will overcome your goodness towards us. We will be disciplined, but we will not be rejected. 
And we're so grateful. Lord, Lord, you are all the things we sing. And that's where we find rest for our weary souls, and that's where we find answers to our questions and our perplexities. And like a weaned child, we will wait as we trust in you. In Jesus' name.